Well, we're starting a new series tonight, as I announced, on the book of Hosea. And I have toned down the title for tonight, though folks, some folks wanted me to leave it as it was. The previous title sounded more interesting. The previous title was going to be uh, Local Preacher Mary's Town Hooker. <laughs> but... Instead, I changed it to God Fixes Broken Things. should be able to find Daniel because we were in Daniel last year for about 12 weeks. So Hosea is right after Daniel. I got it. Thank you. Thank you. Find Hosea chapter 1. And I'm reading tonight actually from the NLT, the New Living Translation. And we're going to be reading lots of scripture tonight uh, as we sort of set the table this evening for the book. And uh, so have, have uh, your Bibles open and ready to turn because we'll be looking at a number of other passages that we need to look at just to sort of understand the, the context. Okay? Got it? Hosea chapter 1. The Lord gave this message to Hosea, son of uh, uh, Beri, during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of uh, Deblain, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, Name the child Jezreel. For I am about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. Soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, Name your daughter Lo Ruhamah, not loved. For I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them, but I will show love to the people of Judah. 
I will free them from their enemies, not with weapons and armies or horses and charioteers, but by my power as the Lord their God. After Gomer had waned, lo, Ruhamah, she again became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, not my people. For Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. Yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. Then at the place where they were told, You are not my people, it will be said, You are children of the living God. Then the people of Judah and Israel will unite together. They will choose one leader for themselves, and they will return from exile together. What a day that will be, the day of Jezreel, when God will again plant his people in his land. In that day you will call your brothers, I me, my people, and you will call your sisters, Ruhamah, the ones I love. I want to ask you tonight, are you broken? Do you need a fresh start? Well, God can do that. Because God is a redeemer. He is a redeeming God. Now folks, in the book of Hosea, we're going to see the promise of a new day for the people, uh, the people of God after the exile in Judah. And so we're going to see that there's great hope for the people of God. God is able to bring beauty from ashes. We see in the Bible that God yearns for both prodigal sons and elder sons to come to Him. Now you'll remember that parable in the book of Luke, right? And Glenn, I'm going to ask you to cut me down a little bit tonight. I think it's a bit loud. Uh, you remember the story of the prodigal son, right? What was that? What was that parable about? Is when son asking his father for his, yeah. uh, before the younger son demands the inheritance before his father dies. He wants it now. He's basically saying, "I wish you were dead, so I could go ahead and get what's coming to me." And he gave it to him. And he takes it and goes into a faraway country and he squanders away the inheritance that he had on wild living. But then he comes to his senses and comes back home. And what did he find about the father when he came back home? The father ran out to greet him. The father was waiting. And he saw him coming and ran to him, right? Mm -hmm. And hugged him and said, kill the fattened calf and put sandals on his feet and bring up the best robe and a ring for his finger uh, because this my son was dead and he's alive again. And then the elder son, remember, who had never left home, he was in the fields when he heard about the celebration. He was angry, right? And then the father had to have a conversation with him that it was only right to welcome his son uh, back home. But the elder brother was bitter. He needed to understand the father's heart too. <coughs> Uh, more than being the parable of the prodigal son, it's really the parable of a loving father because it's about a father who has two sons and he loved them both. Uh, so thank God that we have a God like that who's looking for wayward sons and daughters to come back to him. Also in the book of Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians 2, you as Gentiles were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
Now, I mention those passages in connection with Hosea because in Hosea, you find God's heart is to be in relationship with His people. He's grieved by our wayward hearts and He calls us back to Himself. And so whether welcoming a son back home after rebellion uh, or saving a lost soul, God invites His people to walk in fellowship with Him. Remember, He's the God that went looking for Adam and Eve after they had sinned in the garden. And if God weren't like that, there would be no hope for any of us. Amen. So we need to keep that in mind as we study the book of Hosea. Now I want to begin by giving you a, a bit of background since we're jumping into this book tonight for the first time. Uh, Hosea's ministry spanned a period of probably about 60 years. The prophet Isaiah and Micah both would have been contemporaries to Hosea. Though Mike and Isaiah's ministries focused on Judah, the southern kingdom, while Hosea's ministry focused on Israel or the northern kingdom. Now, Jeroboam II was the king of Israel at the start of Hosea's ministry. And remember also that Israel, the northern kingdom, is sometimes referred to as Ephraim after its major tribe. I just want you to keep these names in mind as we go through the book to avoid confusion. So remember that Israel is sometimes referred to as Israel. Sometimes it's referred to as the northern kingdom. Sometimes it's referred to as Ephraim. But we're, all, we're talking about the same place, the northern kingdom. Uh, also, Hosea's ministry would have some overlap with Amos' ministry. Now, Amos was from the southern kingdom but he went up to the northern kingdom uh, to preach. Now, 755 to 715 B.C. would be possible dates for the main years of Hosea's ministry. And Hosea's ministry in the north spanned the reigns of Israel's last seven kings. In fact, his ministry span the time of more kings than any other Old Testament prophet. Now you'll recall what happened to the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And what was that? The Assyrians destroyed them, right? And the northern kingdom is over. It doesn't factor into the Old Testament history anymore. And then God begins dealing with uh, primarily with Judah, the southern kingdom, the two tribes there. Ten tribes that made up the northern kingdom, two tribes that made up the southern uh, kingdom. Now, it's not that Hosea never mentions Judah or the southern kingdom because he does. But the book of Hosea and his prophecies are mainly addressed to the northern kingdom. There's some passages of great hope in Hosea. And these passages of great hope will include the southern kingdom after they come back from the Babylonian exile. And in fact, the messages of hope will cover all the way up to the arrival of Jesus the Messiah and the new covenant that's ushered in. And the promises even extend into the yet future for you and me today. So there's great promises in the book of Hosea that include all of the people of God. 
Now the natural, uh, the, not natural, the national situation was like a tale of two cities. Remember Charles Dickens' book about that? Tale of Two Cities? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. On the one hand, it was the best of times because the people were very comfortable. They had everything that they needed. They had everything that they wanted. They thought they were very secure. But it was the worst of times because while they were secure, they had become idolaters. And God was about to judge them and discipline them because of this. They had begun living for comfort and pleasure. And everything else about their lives had apparently become compromised. Things like their integrity, their spiritual fervor and passion, their, their faithfulness, their moral integrity, all of those things were compromised. And yet they didn't see it. They were blind to their spiritual condition. They didn't see how needy they truly were. Now the book of Hosea in some ways is like one big long legal document from God laying out the charges against His people. And what God's going to point out to them is that the discipline and the judgment He's going to bring on them is their own fault. Because they've broken the covenant stipulations. I want you to write down Deuteronomy 28. And you can go home tonight and read Deuteronomy 28. Because in Deuteronomy 28, God is laying out all of the stipulations of the covenant and the blessings that He will bring on His people if they will obey their end of the, the covenant. And then He also lays out the curses that He will bring on them if they break the covenant. So in Deuteronomy 28, you're going to see both promises and curses whether or not the people keep their end of the covenant. And so all of the judgments of God against Israel that Hosea the prophet is going to talk about, all of these judgments are nothing more than God executing the terms of the covenant. He had warned them. They had no excuse. And so again, this was their fault. They had broken the covenant. And they were uh, going to be disciplined. They were going to be judged because they had broken the covenant. You know, the people had even recited the covenant and the terms of the covenant at the end of the book of Joshua. you remember this? Joshua divided them up and put one group on one mountain on one side of the valley. He took another group, put them on the other side on a mountain, uh, on that side of the valley, and the people were chanting back and forth. They were reciting the terms of the covenant, the blessings and the curses of the covenant that Joshua had them reciting back and forth. And so again, they knew all of this. And they were breaking the covenant. And so whatever God does to them, they deserve. They're responsible. Now, Hosea is classified as a minor prophet. Is this because his message uh, is not 
big enough or important enough to be a major profit. You know, he's kind of like a baseball player who plays in the minor leagues and he's not good enough to play in the major leagues. No. Why, why do we have minor prophets and major prophets in the Old Testament? Why are they distinguished that way? The length of the book, exactly. The minor prophets are referred to as the minor prophets simply because their books are shorter. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, major prophets, even Daniel. Even though Hosea is as long as Daniel, yet Daniel's still the major prophet. Uh, but still, the major prophet, those books are huge books. And some of the minor prophets are no more than one or two chapters. Again, it's not that their message was less important. Their message was just more brief than the major prophets. And of the 12 minor prophets, the book of Hosea stands at the head of that list. He is the first of the 12 minor prophets. Now, let's see several things tonight. First of all, I want you to note on your study guide there, Hosea's difficult assignment. Look at verse 2 again. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Now folks, the prophets had to do some very interesting things at certain times. Uh, Ezekiel, for instance played army games in the dirt. Isaiah was told to parade around without any clothing on. In fact, let's look at those. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 4 for a minute. Ezekiel chapter 4. And I'm just going to read uh, the first eight verses of Ezekiel chapter 4. Listen to what Ezekiel is being asked to do because the message he's to proclaim to the people is tied up in the action that he's called to do. And so God says, And now, son of man, take a large clay brick and set it down in front of you. Then draw a map of the city of Jerusalem on it. Show the city under siege. Build a wall around it so no one can escape. Set up the enemy camp and surround the city with siege ramps and battering ramps. Then take an iron griddle and place it between you and the city. Turn toward the city and demonstrate how harsh the siege will be against Jerusalem. This will be a warning to the people of Israel. Now lie on your left side and place the sins of Israel on yourself. You are to bear their sins for the number of days you lie there on your side. I am requiring you to bear Israel's sins for 390 days, one day for each year of their sin. After that, turn over and lie on your right side for 40 days, one day for each year of Judah's sin. Meanwhile, keep staring at the siege of Jerusalem. Lie there with your arm a beard and prophesy her destruction. I will tie you up with ropes so you won't be able to turn from side to side until the days of your siege have been completed. 
And so here's Ezekiel. He's to carry out this, this visual as an illustration. And then you look over at Isaiah chapter 20. So turn over to chapter 20 of the book of Isaiah and begin reading with me in verse 2. We'll read just down through verse 4. In verse 2, the Lord told Isaiah, son of Amos, Take off the burlap you have been wearing and remove your sandals. Isaiah did as he was told and walked around naked and barefoot. And then the Lord said, My servant Isaiah has been walking around naked and barefoot for the last three years. This is a sign, a symbol of the terrible troubles I will bring upon Egypt and Ethiopia. For the king of Assyria will take away the Egyptians and Ethiopians as prisoners. He will make them walk naked and barefoot, both young and old, their buttocks uh, bared to the shame of Egypt. So you see right there, commonly God would have the prophets do some strange things at times to carry out a message by their actions. But I want to tell you something, folks. None of the prophets had as hard an assignment as Hosea. Because what is Hosea supposed to go and do? Marry a prostitute. And if that's not bad enough, her name was Gomer. I guess she grew up in Mayberry. <laughs> but I want you to imagine this scene. Can, can you just get this picture in your mind? The prophet, the holy man of God, is marrying the town hooker. That's what's going on. Can you imagine the gossip that would have been in the streets? People would have been saying, what in the world is the prophet Hosea doing? Has he lost his mind? No. God told him to do this. And he's acting in obedience to God. Why would God have him do something like this? I mean, it seems so unreasonable. But what we need to understand is this marriage would be a visible illustration of God in his relationship to Israel. God is like Hosea who is faithful even when his bride isn't. Gomer is like Israel who constantly went after other lovers. Israel loved her idols. Now often in the Bible God uses marriage as an illustration of his relationship with his people. Marriage is to be the most intimate of all human relationships. And, and so this is an analogy for us. Our relationship with God is not intended to be distant. People have the idea God's distant. Now, in a sense, He is transcendent. He's other than us. He's separate than us. But He's also imminent. He's near. He cares for His people. He communicates that He cares for His people. And He uses the most intimate of all human relationships to communicate what our relationship with Him is to be like. There are many places in both the Old and the New Testament where marriage is used as the illustration of God and His people. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 54. 
Isaiah 54. And look at verse 5. Isaiah 54, verse 5. And here's what the people are told. For your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. Now turn over to chapter 62 of Isaiah. Isaiah 62, and look at verse 5. Your children will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem, just as a young man commits himself to his bride, then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 14. Jeremiah 3, verse 14. Return home, you wayward children, says the Lord, for I am your master. Literally there, I'm your husband. I will bring you back to the land of Israel, one from this town and two from that family, from wherever you are scattered. And then turn to the New Testament for a moment. Uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Don't worry if you can't keep up. Just listen closely and I'll, I'll read the verses. Matthew 9, beginning there in verse 14. One day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, Why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, Do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. Then in Matthew 25, uh, verses 1 to 13, there's that parable. Uh, I won't read the whole parable. Just write down Matthew 25, 1 to 13, the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins. And they're at a wedding, a wedding that takes place. And then, of course, over in Ephesians 5, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. This may be the most well-known passage about the marriage relationship and how it's compared to our relationship with God. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault in the same way Husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, and here's what I want you to underscore. But it is an illustration, Paul says, of the way Christ and the church are one. So human marriage is compared 
to God's relationship with his people. So again, what I'm trying to tell you is what we see in the book of Hosea and this analogy that's being given as an illustration it is something that we see oftentimes in the Old and New Testaments that marriage is compared to God's relationship with his people. And Hosea's broken marriage will be an illustration of the broken relationship between God and his people. Now, as heartbroken as Hosea surely must have been at his wife's unfaithfulness, God is even more heartbroken over his people. Listen to what he says about that in Jeremiah chapter 2. I told you we're reading a lot of scripture tonight, laying a foundation here. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God says, I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago, how you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. In those days Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his children. All who harmed his people were declared guilty, and disaster fell on them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Listen to the word of the Lord, people of Jacob, all you families of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What did your ancestors find wrong with me that led them astray so far from me? They worshipped worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us safely out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought and death where no one lives or even travels. And when I brought you into a fruitful land to enjoy its bounty and goodness, you defiled my land and corrupted the possessions I had promised you. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who taught my word ignored me. The rulers turned against me, and the prophets spoke in the name of Baal, wasting their time on worthless idols. Therefore, I will bring my case against you, says the Lord. I will even bring charges against your children's children in the years to come. Go west and look in the land of Cyprus. Go east and search through the land of Kedar. Has anyone ever heard of anything as strange as this? Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they're not gods at all? Yet my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. What do we see there in Jeremiah chapter 2? We see the heartbreak of God over his bride. His people have forsaken him and turned to other lovers, turned to idols which are not gods at all. And so even as Hosea would be heartbroken over the actions of Gomer, God is communicating he's heartbroken over the actions of his bride, his people, because they've forsaken him. Now, I think we could safely say, as I mentioned earlier, Hosea was called to a very difficult assignment, right? Extremely difficult. Have you ever been called to a difficult assignment? 
Where might God have you at this stage in your life? Has He placed something on your heart that's a hard pill to swallow? I want you to remember, even if it's difficult, God has a purpose in it. Don't forget that. He sees tomorrow. We don't. And so we have to trust Him even when our feet might be tempted to run the other way. And also know this, hard times and difficult circumstances don't mean necessarily that God is angry with you. That was the thinking of Job's friends. They thought that Job must be in sin because he was suffering. And yet God had said that Job was righteous. Likewise, Hosea was in the center of God's will. And yet he was to marry a woman who would break his heart time after time after time. I want you to remember Jeroboam, the first Jeroboam, had introduced idolatry into Israel when the kingdom split. Remember when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became the king? And the younger advisors advised Rehoboam to be more harsh on the people than even Solomon was. And so Jeroboam led ten tribes to break off from Rehoboam. And those ten tribes became Israel, the northern kingdom. The kingdom split. And when they went up north, what did Jeroboam do? What is it that he set up and established? Does anybody remember that? Idols. Idols. Golden calves of all things. He set one altar up just north of Jerusalem in the southern part of the northern kingdom so that the people in that region of the northern kingdom wouldn't have to go all the way down into Jerusalem to the temple. And then in the northern part of the northern kingdom at Bethel, he set up golden calves there. And he said, these are your gods now, O Israel. Here are your gods that you can worship. And the people were foolish enough to do that. And in fact, their idolatry grew even worse. Because the northern kingdom grew infected with Baalism. Baalism was the religion of many of the Canaanite peoples. And Baalism was basically a fertility cult. Baal had his female consort, Asherah, and it was believed that up in the heavens, Baal and Asherah were having sexual relations, and this is what brought rain and fertility down to the earth. Baal was the storm god in their way of thinking. And so in Baalism, there would be prostitutes. You would engage in relations with a prostitute so that Baal and Asherah would see this and it would motivate them to engage in sexual activity which would bring fertility to the earth. It was a fertility cult of pagan people. And how in the world after Israel, seeing what God did for them in Egypt, how in the world they could turn to something like Baalism 
is beyond the wildest imagination, but they did. They turned to Baalism. And then they would try to also worship Yahweh at the same time and try to blend the two together. I guess they thought they were covering all their bases. Now just imagine how God must have felt. Here he's the one who delivered them from Egypt, led them through the wilderness, had placed them in their own land. Time and time again they had witnessed the mighty hand of God providing for them, protecting them, and now what are they doing? They're going after other gods, which are no gods at all. Just dead idols. They're seeking love from dead idols. And likewise, here's Hosea, the faithful husband who has provided for Gomer, protected her, but instead of her giving her affections to Hosea, what's she doing? She turns to other lovers and lives the life of a prostitute. So again, it's a parallel uh, between God's relationship with his bride, his people. The relationships mirror one another. And that's the message in the book of, of Hosea. Now, Gomer's adultery not only affected Hosea, but even their children would be affected as well. Concerning the children of Hosea, the first is Hosea's apparently, and by his name, God says he would scatter his people. And that's what... God used the Assyrians to do, to scatter Israel and destroy them. And then he raised up the Babylonians who did the same with Judah, although he brought them back after 70 years. Now the second child is a daughter named in Hebrew, not loved. Now do you see the first two letters connected with her name, Lo? Lo in Hebrew means no or not. So, probably she was not Hosea's. And then Gomer gave birth to a third child, a son, who apparently was also not Hosea's. And he was to be named, Not My People. Can't you hear it now? Gomer says, Honey, how about taking your son to his soccer game? He's going to be late. And Hosea says, Nope, not going to do it. Not my people. <laughs> Folks, think about it. These kids would have to live with these names. They would have to bear these names. <laughs> and what do we see by that? Gomer's sin impacts not just Hosea, but also her children. Imagine a child walking around advertising their mom's unfaithfulness by their very names. Talk about stigma to live with. That's what Gomer has done to her family, her children. Her whole family is having to bear her shame. And folks, the same is true with us. Sin is not a matter of <coughs> private consequences. Because of our sin, sometimes people around us can be affected. Sometimes your own family members are never the same again. 
and your kids might have to end up bearing the shame of their parents. Well, secondly tonight, I want you to see Hosea's pain. Beginning there in verse 2 again. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, He said to him, Go and marry a prostitute so that some of her, some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Gibraim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, Name the child Jezreel, for I'm about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. Soon Gomer became pregnant again, gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to Hosea, Name your daughter Lu-Rukamah, not loved, for I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them, but I will show love to the people of Judah. I will free them from their enemies, not with weapons and armies or horses and charioteers, but by my power as the Lord their God. After Gomer had weaned Lo-Rukamah, she again became pregnant and gave birth to a second son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, not my people, for Israel is not my people, and I am not their, and I am not their God. Imagine Hosea's pain in all of this. Again, being married to a woman he's committed to, and yet his wife is constantly stepping out on him. She keeps going back to other lovers. And what would most people say in that situation? I'm done. I'm done. You're moving out or I'm moving out. But this marriage is over. And yet what does God say to Hosea? Hosea, go and take Gomer back. Now some of you may have experienced an unfaithful spouse before. And no, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I wouldn't do that. But you know that pain personally. And I can say as a pastor, I've committed, I, I've counseled a, a lot of couples that one or the other has committed that. And sometimes, if there's repentance, there can be forgiveness and restoration. Sometimes, the spouse that was sinned against says, no, I'm, I'm out of here. And the New Testament gives adultery as a legitimate reason for divorce. It's one of the reasons God allows for divorce. Again, a divorce doesn't have to take place, but the spouse sinned against has the right to a divorce because the straying spouse has broken the one flesh relationship. Hosea had every right to divorce Gomer. But God said, take her back. Take her back. Again, pain on Hosea's part? I would imagine so. Just like God's pain with His people straying from Him. 
Bible says God is jealous for us. He loves us with a perfect love. He loves us even when we are not worthy objects of that love. And that becomes a lesson to us in how we're to love. Don't expect people to deserve your love because you didn't deserve God's love. You're very unchristlike if you only love those that you think deserve your love. Jesus told us, remember, we're even to love our enemies. And he said, if we only love those who love us, we've done no better than the Pharisees. And Jesus said, your righteousness has got to exceed that of the Pharisees. If you just love people who love you back or pat people on the back who pat you on the back, you've done nothing special. Anybody in the world can do that. Now, people who are in a love relationship ought to desire to honor the other party. We ought to want to honor and glorify our Heavenly Father and not just presume upon His, his love. That's how we ought to act. But again, I want to ask you tonight, is there continual unfaithfulness in you regarding your relationship with God? Are you like Gomer? Chasing after illegitimate lovers. Things in your life that you are chasing after ahead of God. Things that you're giving your affections to above God. Putting those things above Him. Are you guilty of any of that in your life? Does God have your affections? Does he have your faithfulness? Lastly tonight, I want you to see God's redemption of his people. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. Then, at the place where they were told, you are not my people, it will be said, you are children of the living God. Then the people of Judah and Israel will unite together. They will choose one leader for themselves and they will return from exile together. What a day that will be. The day of Jezreel when God will again plant His people in His land. God is able to do a fresh work in the hearts of His people. And he is promising them here that there's coming a day after Assyria, after Babylon, there's coming a day that the Jews will be resettled in their land. They will no longer be scattered, but instead they will be planted. And he uses the same word, Jezreel, which can mean either. In the first instance earlier in the chapter, it meant scattered, but now it takes on the meaning of planted. They will once again be planted in their own land and be God's people. And so they are being promised a great day of redemption. God is promising to take His people back after they have broken the covenant with Him. Folks, remember that in Christ, those who were far away have been brought near through the blood of the cross. We were strangers, but now we've been made sons and daughters and we're able to call out Abba, Father. 
Amen. and have a relationship with Him. People who had strayed, people who had gone far away from Him, because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not even one, Paul says in Romans chapter 3. We have all strayed and broken God's heart, and yet He provided the way that we could come to Him and be in an intimate relationship with Him again. The grace of God. The grace of God. I mentioned the prodigal son at the beginning. That's exactly the message conveyed in Hosea. The younger son took everything his father had given him. He just wanted to get away from his father. That's what he did. He squandered everything of his father's. But when he returned, the father was looking for him and waiting for him. And he runs to his son. Same thing in Hosea. That's what's promised. Regardless of their sin, God has a future for them and God has a hope for them. And so folks, we need to understand ultimately that Hosea is not the hero of the book of Hosea. Who's the hero? God is. God is. On the human level, you might think Hosea is. But again, he's a picture of God. And God is the one who pursues His people, though we have broken covenant with Him and betrayed Him and gone after other lovers. And God has taken the initiative to pursue us and bring us back into a relationship with Him. The promise of this book is that God takes back sinful people who don't deserve it. And that's something you and I can be grateful for. Now, what are some takeaway lessons? Number one, God pursues a covenant relationship with His people. Covenants involve commitments from both parties. Second lesson, God does not view sin lightly. Sin has terrible consequences. But let no one say we've not been warned. Third lesson. Don't assume God's assignments for you are always supposed to be easy. And then a last lesson. God redeems fallen people when they come back to Him. And he promises a new day. Now that took a little longer tonight than I had in mind that it would. But anyway, just again, set the foundation. Any comments, any questions? Yeah. Uh-huh. All of this time, back then to now. Yep. Why has it deteriorated the condition that it is now. Very seldom do you see Joe divorce his marriage. The paper says Joe killed marriage. Sure. Why have we let it get to that point? The downward spiral of sin? The, the trajectory of sin? Why have we let it get this far? Before something? Sure. Is turned around 
The trajectory of sin. Read Romans chapter 1, read 2 Timothy chapter 3. And God says before the end, it's even going to get worse. It's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. The downward spiral of sin. And, 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 and according to Romans 1, what God does when people reject His truth, the punishment for sin is more sin. He turns them loose to go their own way. And it's here. Yep. yep. And materialism, he'd rather kill her than give her money. The trajectory of sin, though, is always down. Down, down, down. And the thing is, as people sin and enjoy that sin, what happens with the heart? It gets more and more callous. And people become more and more blind. And then they do worse things. More callous. Worse things. Again, it's what Romans 1 clearly communicates. They repress the truth. Yep. They suppress the truth, did not want to hear God's truth, so God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Three times in that chapter, he says, God gave them over to go the direction they were determined to go. But you also see, or I read that this can parallel, it's the Old Testament of the New Testament, John, in God's love story for us. Yeah, sure. Samaritans, half-breeds, and, and God didn't deal with them. God, God continued to deal with Judah. He preserved Judah, and we know why He preserved Judah, because the Messiah was coming through Judah. So in this case, in a marital sense, He divorced the northern territory. Mm -hmm. yep. So God divorced because of Document of divorce. 
Does anybody know where that verse is off the top of your head? Where God says, I'm, I'm giving them an edict of divorce? I forget where that is. But anyway. And, and as I say, he, he then continued to deal with Judah. Disciplined them by the 70-year exile, but brought them back because he was preserving a remnant. God always preserves for himself a remnant and he preserved them because again, through their line, the Messiah was going to appear. You know, it's in one of the prophets. I'm just off the top of my head, I can't think of where it is that he says, I'm giving them a bill of divorcement. Is what the way he states it. In Jeremiah 3, 8 through 10. 3, 8 through 10. I think it says, I have faith, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you. Oh, that was Google. <laughs> <laughs> Jer you said Jeremiah, it says 3, Jeremiah 3, 8 through 10. 8 through 10. 